We are still in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 20 this morning. What an amazing book that God has spoken through the Apostle Paul to give us his word and to deal with things that are very important and applicable to us today, the day in which we live. And I, I know to some degree it's been applicable to th- throughout church history as the issue of works as salvific has been an issue throughout church history, but in particular it is today. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15, Brothers, I speak in human terms, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. And what I am am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance is by the law, It is no longer by promise, but God has granted it to Abraham through promise. Why the law then? It was added because of trespasses, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been had been made. Verse 20. Now a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Father of glory, Lord, we worship you this morning. We praise you this morning for your marvelous grace in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the salvation that we have in him. God, thank you for the hope, that sure hope of heaven that we have in Christ, in his person and in his work. And God, we thank you this morning that we can gather on this Lord's day and worship you. We can proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would see how you have worked through history in bringing salvation to your people. How you worked through history to prepare a world for the coming of of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the sin debt for our sins. God, thank you for this glorious plan. Thank you for the proclamation of it, the shadows and the types, the prophecies, all these things pointing to our need for Christ and pointing to Christ himself. So I pray this morning, God, we'll see the unity of your word and we'll see that, Lord, we have nothing to offer We cannot trust in our good works. We cannot trust in our ability, even though we don't really have that, to try to keep your law. But you and the person of Christ has provided a complete salvation, that that salvation is in Christ alone, by your grace alone, through faith alone. God, may it be perfectly clear, and may we be worshipers of you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout history, God has provided redemption for his people 
through the structure of covenant. We read about God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and 22. God promised Abraham that through him would come a people of God who would be like the stars of the heavens and that Abraham would be the father of many nations. And these descendants would be called a great nation. Later, they're referred to as the citizenship of Israel. They're referred to as a kingdom, even the household of God. God promised protection for his people. I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you. I will curse. But we see an ultimate blessing in the covenant with Abraham. God tells Abraham that in you, all the families, its clans or people groups of the earth would be blessed. And the sign of this covenant was male circumcision. The Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant were really the outworking of the covenant God made with Abraham. It would be through the blood of the new covenant that the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled. It would be realized. Remember, the Davidic covenant promised an eternal king for God's people, 2 Samuel 7, and that Yahweh would establish his kingdom and his household forever. The Palestinian covenant promised his people circumcised hearts and that God would bring them into the land that he had promised. God also promised a future covenant called the new covenant in which God would give his people hearts to understand eyes to see and ears to hear. He would give his people new hearts, turning their hearts of stone, hearts dead to God into hearts of flesh, living hearts that respond and obey and worship God. God promised to put his laws in his people and write them on their hearts. He promised to put his spirit within them and to cause them to to walk in his statutes. So unlike those who sought righteousness through the Mosaic covenant. But again, these covenants, these covenants of promise are the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant, I believe. They, in a sense, give explanation to the covenant God made with Abraham. So the Abrahamic covenant was the foundational covenant of promise. You see, Abraham was the father of Israel. So that covenant was the covenant promise which the Jewish people looked to. Abraham was their father, so they claimed the blessings that belonged to Abraham. God gave another covenant 430 years later after he spoke to Abraham. The Mosaic covenant, God's law, God's standard for his people. You see, a nation, a kingdom needs laws established by the king. And in this case, it would be a standard based upon the essence of the God of Israel. In this covenant, God promised blessings for those who obeyed his law and cursings for those who disobey it. So it was through this covenant many Jews sought to be righteous, especially the Pharisees. And as we read about in this epistle to the Galatians, the Judaizers. When the Messiah came, the Pharisees rejected him altogether. They were content to rest their faith in their pedigree and in their own righteousness. 
And while the Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Mashiach, the Messiah, they added circumcision and law-keeping to the work of Christ. To these, it was not salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. It was salvation by grace plus works. The churches of Galatia were being deceived by the Judaizers. They were The Judaizers were distorting the gospel of God's grace, but the law was never a means of righteousness. It was only a means of coming to grip with one's sinful condition, and that's what we will see this morning. The last time that we were in Galatians, I think four Sundays ago, we were in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, and we saw that as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. All who seek to be righteous by keeping the law remain under the curse of God. They are helpless to keep it. Paul here quotes from Deuteronomy 27, 26, and he writes, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Paul says that no one, absolutely no one is justified by the law before God. You see, because of our stony, sinful hearts, we cannot abide by all things written. We have all missed the mark and fallen short of God's glorious standard. In verse 11, Paul shows us clearly how a man is made right before God, and he does so by quoting Habakkuk 2.4. And the just, the righteous shall live by faith. It is through faith in Christ alone that a sinner is declared righteous before God. It is not by the works of the law. It is not by man's doing. It is by faith in what Christ has done. It is by faith in him. The law says do, but we cannot keep it. Folks, the gospel says done for Christ has kept the whole law and bore our sins in full. In verse 12, Paul shows us the contrast between the law and faith. He says the law is not of faith. And last time we defined that, meaning that the law is not a matter of faith. It does not relate to faith. It does not require faith. It is another system altogether. Then Paul quotes Leviticus 18.5, and he writes, He who does them shall live by them. If you wish to claim righteousness by the law, you must live by the law perfectly. Yet James told us, chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So Paul also writes, therefore, by the deeds of the law, the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. It is through the law that we are made perfectly aware that we are exceedingly sinful. And see, that's the bad news, that we are helpless to keep God's law. We are helpless to live up to his glory. We are without hope in and of ourselves. But in verses 13 and 14, Paul delivers the good news. He delivers the greatest news that any man will ever hear, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Jesus, the Mashiach, experienced what it means to be cursed by God as he hung upon the cross. You see, he is our substitute. 
because our sins were imputed to him, because our guilt was placed upon him, he was abandoned by the father. The father turned his face away. His son was treated as if he was the guilty party in our place. He bore our sins. He took our punishment, the just for the unjust, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law and bring us to God, to reconcile us, in other words, to God, bringing us into a relationship with him. So Christ took the curse that the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, received through the promise of the Spirit by faith. Then in verse 15, where we pick up today, Paul takes us to the concept of covenant, and he writes in verse 15, Brothers, I speak in human terms, even though, <coughs> excuse me, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, karao, it means to be confirmed or validated. No one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Paul is giving an illustration about covenants in human terms. Paul is saying that even when a human covenant is ratified, it cannot be annulled. It, it, it was not the practice. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It cannot be updated. He says here, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Once it's ratified, once it's confirmed. But how much more is this true? When it is a divine covenant in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham that is unchanging. It has never been set aside. It has never been added to the Bible says in response to that covenant, in response to God, Abraham believed God and counted to him, credited to him, imputed to him as righteousness. You see salvation. Regardless of what some of the hyper-dispensationalists tell you, salvation has always been by faith. It doesn't matter whether it was prior to the law or during the law. Salvation is always by faith, by grace through faith. But Abraham then questions God, believe it or not. He asked this question, how can I know for sure that these promises will come to pass? So God graciously confirms the covenant with Abraham. It's a blood covenant. He instructs Abraham to cut some animals in half and line up the pieces in two rows. He puts Abraham to sleep and reveals this vision. Abraham sees a flaming torch pass between the pieces. And what we have here is a theophany. The flaming torch represents God passing between the pieces, ratifying guaranteeing the covenant. God was saying, if I fail to keep my promise, may I also be cut in half. R.C. Sproul writes that God is saying to Abraham, if I don't keep my word, may my immutability, excuse me, be mutated. My immortality be mortal. My eternality become temporal. My omnipotence become impotence. My omniscience become ignorance. God is swearing by himself. There is no greater. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 6.13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. 
See, this is the guarantee that cannot fail. It will not fail. A promise based upon the essence and character of God himself. The God of Israel is immutable. He never changes. He is faithful. He never breaks his word. Could swear by no one greater. Now watch this. Not only was God's promise to Abraham irrevocable, Based on the character of God, in verse 16, we see it would be fulfilled through a particular descendant, the seed of Abraham. Verse 16, let's read it again. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather one. And to your seed, speaking to Abraham, and to your seed, that is Christ He's talking about the Messiah, the anointed one. You see, the seed that God promised to bless is one that is Christ, the Messiah. He's the one through whom all blessings flow, folks. It is the same one promised after Adam and Eve sinned against God. When God cursed the man, he cursed the serpent. It was through the curse upon the serpent that the rescuer, The deliverer, the savior, the Messiah would come. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He would defeat the devil, the father of lies. In Genesis 22, 18 tells us that this seed would be a descendant of Abraham. It makes it specific. It's Abraham. And through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Not just the physical descendants of Abraham but all the nations of the earth would be blessed. You see, the blessings come not specifically for the descendants of Abraham, but for those with the faith of Abraham, all those in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. Paul wrote this exact exact thing in this book, didn't he? We saw it just a few weeks ago. Galatians 3, 6, and 7, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness, So know that those who are of faith, those are the sons of Abraham. It couldn't be any more clear, could it? We also see the Redeemer pictured in God's provision for Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve failed to adequately cover their own shame with fig leaves, God slaughtered animals and made tunics of skin to cover them. It was by the shedding of blood that their sins would be for that their sins would be covered and just as the skins of those animals covered their shame in the eyes of man the death of those animals by the shedding of blood covered their sin in the eyes of God albeit it was a temporary covering it pointed to the real covering that would come the person of the Lord Jesus Christ the seed of Abraham verses 16 and 17 and what I what I am saying is this The law, which came 430 years later, did not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God has granted it to Abraham through promise. The law of Moses came 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham. Paul says the law which came later does not invalidate the promise that was previously ratified by God himself. It did not cancel the promise. The law was not an addition to the promise. 
Paul says in verse 15, it does not set aside the promise, nor as is the promise added to. Verse 18, for if the inheritance is by the law, it is no longer by promise. But God has granted it to Abraham through promise. Paul says the inheritance cannot be both by law and by promise. If it's by law, if it's by works, it is no longer by promise. But God has granted it to Abraham through promise, through a covenant ratified by the immutable God himself, through God's gracious promise to Abraham. So the promise is the grace of God received by faith. But why did God make a covenant with Moses after making a covenant with Abraham? First, remember the covenant with Moses had both blessings and sanctions. If you kept the law, there were blessings. But the sanction said, if you do not obey all things written, God will curse you every place you go, everything that you do. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of the cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you go in and cursed shall you be when you go out. Paul is saying, as he says in verse 10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. So which is it? Did God accept his people based upon the works of the law or by the grace of the promise? Did God change his mind after he swore by himself to bless Abraham? Was the promise to Abraham plan A and the requirements of the law plan B? Had God changed his mind? Maybe we should ask which covenant applies to us today, the covenant of promise or the covenant of works. Paul answers these questions in verse 19, and he does so by answering his own question, and his question is this, why the law then? Isn't that the primary question? If we have the covenant of promise, why the law? What was the purpose of the law? Paul answers his own question, verse 19, why the law then? It was added because of trespasses. Hebrew, simply put, law-breaking, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Does this imply that there were no trespasses before the law? Of course there were trespasses. Paul says in Romans that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Folks, the punishment for sin... For breaking God's law is death, and people died during that time. But since there was mo no Mosaic covenant, why did they die? Here's why. Paul teaches us in the book of Romans that the law was already written on the human heart. It was not as if they did not know God's holy standards. You see, cr through creation, as Mitchell talked about last week, God's invisible 
Invisible attributes are clearly seen. His righteousness is revealed in the human heart, being witnessed by the conscience. And although the conscience can be seared and callous, no man can completely extinguish his conscience. We don't need tablets of stone to tell us that it's wrong to murder. We do not need the Mosaic Covenant to know that it's wrong to steal. God's divine standard is written on the human heart. Paul asked, then why the law? It was added because of trespasses or transgressions or trespasses. Because God's people disregarded what they knew in their hearts to be right. That's what was happening when God gave the law. The descendants of Abraham were excusing their sins. Therefore, they were deceiving themselves into thinking, They did not need this Redeemer that would come. They did not need the seed of Abraham. So the law was a wake-up call to everyone in Israel. Every time they failed to abide by it, it was a reminder that they were under the curse, that they could not keep the law, that they needed something better. When someone committed a sin worthy of death, there was immediate justice. So the Mosaic law taught them that the soul that sins shall surely die, that they needed something better. They needed the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. They needed the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the redeemer, the deliverer, the rescuer, the savior of the world who would crush the head of the serpent and save God's people from their sins. That's what they needed. And the law screamed it out to those people. Notice verse 19, and it, the law, was added because of trespasses, having been ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The law had a temporary purpose. It was added until the seed would come. It was added until the fullness of time came when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's in Galatians 4. And notice the seed is the one to whom the promise had been made. You see, all the promises of God are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, all in Christ are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions. These are the people, the descendants of God promised, to whom God promised to bless. He is our God. Those in Christ, those in the seed of Abraham, he is our God and we are his people. In Christ, Gentiles are fellow citizens with the saints, Ephesians 2. We are together the household of God. We are living stones, according to Peter, in the temple of the Lord, a people for God's own possession. Well, finally notice in verse 20, there's so much here. Now, a mediator is not for one person only, whereas God is one. Now, I will tell you, this phrase is very difficult to translate. It literally reads this way, just to give you an idea. The now mediator of one not is, but God one is. That's how it reads in the Greek. In the English, we would probably read it this way. Now, the mediator of one is not, but God is one. And Paul seems to be saying that unlike the Mosaic Covenant, 
in which there was a mediator, God was the only one involved in making the covenant with Abraham. He made this covenant without the use of a mediator. There was no Moses involved. He was Abraham wasn't the mediator. He was the only witness and the recipient of the covenant. He had no part in establishing or keeping this covenant. It was God's covenant. It was unconditional, and God was its guarantee. I mean, you can't get any better than that, can you? You see, this tells us that salvation tells us the salvation that God has promised for his people is not based upon man. Folks, it is based upon God alone. God will not fail. He will not flounder. He will accomplish his purpose to call a people out of this world. He will save his people from their sins. He will redeem a people for his namesake. He will never fail. He accomplishes that which he sets forth to do. All the covenants of promise are fulfilled in Christ. Folks, he is the seed of Abraham from whom all blessings flow, isn't he? He is the king who will rule and reign with justice and righteousness forever and ever. He is the mediator of a new covenant through which the Abrahamic covenant is realized. It is not, (coughs) excuse me. I am well, but I've got remnants of last week, okay? He is the mediator of a new covenant through whom the Abrahamic covenant is realized. It is not through the works of the law. It is not through any righteousness which we have done. It is not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the precious blood of Christ that our sins are atoned for. It's a once And for all time sacrifice, you see in Christ those with the faith of Abraham, those whom God has granted repentance and faith, those in Christ are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. He is our God and we are his people. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Only those who are in Christ, only those who God has brought to faith and repentance are blessed with the blessings of Abraham. In Christ, we're his body serving the omniscient head. We are the bride submitting to the bridegroom. We are the citizenship of Israel, the household of God. It even says in chapter 6 of Galatians, even the Israel of God, Jew and Gentile in one body. We are the temple of God in which the Spirit dwells among his people. We are a chosen race the children of God. We are a royal priesthood offering sacrifices of praise and service unto our God. We are a holy nation, the eternal kingdom of God. Not just, we're not just his subjects. We're the very children of God, a people for God's own possession. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant in which all the blessings of Abraham are fulfilled because Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Isaac, the descendant of Jacob, through whom the people of God would come forth. He is a better Moses. He is a better judge who will judge the world in perfect righteousness. He is a better prophet, the final prophet, through whom the Father has spoken. He is a better priest after the order of Melchizedek, who forever mediates between God and man. Unlike the Old Testament priest, he did not have to offer sacrifices for his own sin, for he was perfectly without sin. He himself has offered 
himself. He's offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Perfectly without sin, he died the just for the unjust. A once again, I shouldn't say once again, again, a once and for all time sacrifice. He is a better king, folks, who will rule and reign forever and ever. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, he is our substitute, God's sufficient sacrifice who satisfied God's justice once and for all time. In the sinner's place, he perfectly fulfilled the requirement of the law. We couldn't do it. He did it in our place. In the sinner's place, he perfectly paid sin debt. It would take us forever separating from God in hell to pay the sin debt. He did it because he is eternal. He did it on the cross. Folks, he is our only hope. He is our peace. He is our redeemer. He is the propitiation, that satisfying substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He is our forgiveness. He has reconciled the sinner, the helpless sinner to God. Although many Jews rejected him, he is the promised Mashiach. So look to him, put your trust in him, stop trusting in law keeping, you cannot do it. Stop trusting in your own righteousness, you cannot be righteous enough. Look to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Trust in him with all your heart, put your confidence in him. He kept the law in your place and his perfect righteousness is imputed to those who believe. The sins of the guilty were also imputed to him, and he bore those sins, fully satisfying God's justice, God's demand for sin. What does that tell you? He is, he is the ultimate divine substitute. You see, we are helpless sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we need a substitute. God has provided that substitute, the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. Folks, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Through faith in him, you will find rest from your sin. You will find rest for your weary souls from your guilt. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you're here today and you're trusting in him, what a confidence we have. God's word is clear. He has spoken from beginning to end, all pointing to Jesus Christ, the substitute, the savior of the world. He is enough. So may your confidence in him be strengthened this morning. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I will remind you, as I commonly do, that the unleavened bread represents Christ's sinless body that was broken and through him, we are brought into the very presence of God, into the holy of holies. The wine represents the cleansing blood of Christ. And just as the Passover wine represented both celebration and blessing, it also represented judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ took our judgment that we might have his abundant blessings. So we celebrate in communion in the Lord's Supper as we remember the Lord's death, I remind you that his death by the shedding of blood was the bride price. He is the bridegroom, and we, the church, are his bride.
He's also the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But every time we partake of the cup, it pictures that covenant, the wedding covenant. We're saying that we are espoused, that we are betrothed to him, the bridegroom. We're saying that I am his and he is mine. We're remembering the bride price. We're saying that we're seeking to be faithful, awaiting his second coming, that we will, just like, just like those first century brides, we will keep oil in our lamps. In other words, we will be filled with the Spirit. Be being filled with the Spirit. It's, uh, it, it's passive. It's that which we receive. God does the filling. We do the receiving. We're also like the first century brides to keep our wicks trimmed, just as they would during that year or so waiting the bridegroom to return. In other words, we are to daily confess our sins, always ready for him to return. And we do this proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes and we await for the bridegroom to come for his bride. He paid the bride price with his precious blood to purchase a bride for himself out of a sinful world, the apple of his eye. But unlike the brides that we married, we as a people had nothing to offer, no beauty that he would look upon us, no white wedding dress, no righteousness. All we wore were filthy rags. We were altogether unlovely and undeserving. We are like Gomer, who Hosea redeemed. The unfaithful, sinners, rebels against God, yet he redeemed us with his precious blood. He made us his precious possession, his bride. We are the people of God by his grace. So as we prepare our hearts, consider the meaning of the bread and the wine. Consider Christ the bridegroom. Consider the bride price that has been paid. You should ask yourself the question, am I truly espoused to him have I been born from above by the Spirit of God? Have I, through faith, not believing the facts about who Christ is, but believing him? It's a trust, a confidence in him that rests in his saving work. May we also consider our faithfulness to him. We should be those who daily confess our sins to God because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's very important. It's imperative that we examine ourselves, confess any sin, examine our hearts, our motives, our purpose, our worship before we partake so that we, not, we do not partake in an unworthy manner. So can we unite our hearts in prayer and each of us examine ourselves so that we may partake. And if you do not know him, if you've not been born from above, I challenge you to let the elements pass you by and consider what they mean. Consider the Lord's death and may God save your soul. Let's pray.